When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Jordan Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, "Who is it you want?" Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, "I am He." Jesus said. When Jesus said, "I am He," they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, "Who is it you want?" Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, "I told you that I am He. If you are looking for me, then let this man go." This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. Jesus commanded Peter, "Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup of the Father has given me?" Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because of because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter. Had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. "You aren't one of this man's disciples, too, are you?" she asked Peter. He replied, "I am not." It was cold, and the servants and officials stood outside, stood round a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter. Also was standing with them, warning, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple, where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely. They know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. "Is this the way you answered the high priest?" he demanded. "If I said something wrong," Jesus replied, "testify as to what is wrong. But if if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me?" Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there, warming himself. So they asked him, "You aren't one of his disciples too, disciples too, are you?" He denied it, saying, "I'm not." One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him, "Didn't I see you with him in the garden?" Again, Peter denied it, and at that moment, a cock began to crow. 
Then the Jewish, le- Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman government governor. By now, it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial unclearness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth, retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. We're getting towards the end of John's gospel and uh, what seems to be the end of the story, but of course we know that's just the start of another uh, chapter of the story. We come to Easter and we remember the events surrounding the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it is a very familiar story and it's easy to skim over bits of it. I mean, it it took me a long time to register that there are two disciples with Jesus. I mean, I must have read it, but I hadn't really cottoned on to that fact. We don't know who it was. But the likelihood is that it was John who was there, Jesus' best friend. On our very first week in John, I said that he writes very deliberately. So although many of us will be familiar with the story, I just want to take a few minutes to to think about why he has written these particular things in this reading today. He's in the garden where he'd been so many times before. They were comfortable. It felt a bit like home. But this time when they called, there was no answer. Something was wrong. Friendship had soured. There was a bad taste in the air, made all the worse by the excuses and feeble stories that followed. Love had been trampled on, and it would take millennia to put right. That wasn't in this story. But in the beginning, in Genesis, 
there was betrayal. And that story, that imagery, stands behind what John is writing in this story. John has really been writing about a new Genesis. He starts, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's always there in the background for him. What he's trying to show is what it really means for the Word to become flesh. And here the roles are reversed. Sinful, violent men come into the garden in the darkness looking for someone. They didn't know it. But like all humans, they were looking for God. Unlike Adam and Eve, Jesus didn't need to hide. He knows what he needs to do. John doesn't focus on the agony that Jesus felt in the garden. But he's already told us in chapters 11, 12, and 13 that Jesus was deeply troubled as he approached these moments. It's as if the new Adam steps forward to meet the old. The Word who is God comes to greet the world. The light of the world stands in front of those who have come in both physical and spiritual darkness. And yet again, it's God who takes the initiative and asks them who they're looking for. When they tell them, (laughs) his answer is both simple and shocking. I am. We've heard that before in John's gospel. For John, it's quite simple. Here is the I am, the bread of life, the light of the world, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth and the life. I suspect something of this explains why the arresting party fall to the ground. It mirrors what people in the Bible do when they come face to face with God. Isn't it sad that actually Judas wasn't necessary at all? He he may have been paid to identify Jesus, but many, if not most, of those people in that garden would have known who Jesus was. And he wasn't even trying to hide. It simply shows that their only way to understand Jesus and his kingdom was on their own terms. They were thinking about violent revolution. Even Peter was still thinking that. And that's one of those points in the story. Do you know, in the Bible there are bits and you think, why didn't you just follow that through? Why didn't you tell us what happened next? So you've got, you've got Peter who lops off the servant's ear. This is the only one where we're told Jesus heals it. The rest of the stories have it, but this is the only one where where we're told Jesus heals the guy. Well, what happens to him now? That's what I want to know. Do you know, he's there taking Jesus and he's taking him to be crucified. And as 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 he is walking, going, what am I doing? Why am I doing this to this man who's just healed me? Who is this anyway? What is, it, what is going through his mind as he's leading Jesus to be tried? Of course, we don't know, because the Bible doesn't. It's one of those things that you think, see, really, that could have been in there, and that would have been helpful. But it's not. 
the irony here is that Jesus, the great high priest, is taken before the earthly high priest, who John has reminded us already has said that it's better for one person to die for all people. So John is setting up the next part of the story. The real high priest will be sent to his death by the false one, so that through his death, God will not rescue just the Jews, but everyone who believes. And then we change locations, and there's an incredibly significant story at play. Smell can be a really powerful stimulator. Do you know, I love a barbecue. Who doesn't like a barbecue? You get the charcoal out, you know, you get it going, you get the beef, and then, oh, when the flames die down, you're ready to cook, and that smell. Charcoal has a really particular smell. And if there's been one around when you've had an experience that has been particularly bad or particularly good, the next time you smell it, you'll remember. It'll bring it back. Sometimes even that intensity of feeling just because you've smelled it. There's Peter standing by a charcoal fire denying that he's ever known Jesus. John has another charcoal fire in a couple of chapters. But the second one brings back the events and the thoughts and the feelings from the first. But the second one is designed to bring reconciliation, to bring restoration. It's there in order to heal the open wound that this night and this story leaves with Peter. And although the others the other stories, the other gospels have Jesus then being questioned and, and, and they kind of focus on that a bit. For John, the focus is still on Peter. Jesus is speaking truth while Peter is lying. Jesus isn't trying to hide, but Peter is. But at least he's there. Peter is cold and tired, drained of the adrenaline of the garden, wondering if the guards will remember that it was him who injured one of them and put them on trial as well. When all of this comes together, it produces fear and panic, lies and disloyalty. And we need to be aware of that in our own lives. When we are tired, when we are down, when we're not reading and praying, when we're not walking with God, then we do stupid things. We act in disobedience through fear. We need to make sure we are looking after our physical and spiritual well-being. Pilate was someone who was a long way from home. He was a career politician, soldier. He was looking to move up the ladder and find a better posting by keeping out of trouble, but it didn't happen. He was removed from office around 37 AD and never heard of again. His style of justice involved pragmatism. He did whatever he had to do 
in order to keep the peace. He tried to send Jesus back to the Jewish authorities, but they were having none of it. He knew that Jesus wasn't stirring up a violent revolution. But he had been accused of something that was worthy of death, and only the Romans could carry out that sentence. So Jesus is going to die the death reserved for rebels. He himself said he would be lifted up. And Jesus on the cross will reveal the amazing majesty of God's saving love. At this point, the lines are converging. What Jesus, Pilate, and the chief priest intend to happen is rushing together, albeit for totally different reasons. The ancient world knew more about kings than we do. They knew that kings were absolute rulers with total authority. They became kings through birth or through revolution and violence. The way to the crown for those who were outside the royal family was violence. It was violent overthrow and uprising. So Pilate thinks that Jesus' claim to be a king could only end in one way, revolution among the Jews and trouble for him. Many translations have Jesus saying in verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. And the problem with using of is that it suggests that Jesus' kingdom is totally otherworldly, a spiritual or heavenly reality that has nothing to do with the real world. And of course it's a spiritual reality, of course it is, but it's in the real world. It affects the real We live, we said earlier, your kingdom come. We want to see Jesus' kingdom at play in the world. It doesn't come from this world. John has told us repeatedly that the world is the source of evil and rebellion, and Jesus is denying that his kingdom has any of those properties. His kingdom doesn't come from this world, but it is for this world. And that's a crucial distinction. Jesus was speaking and bringing truth. You don't get truth from a test tube or mathematical formula. Philosophers, judges, or politicians don't own it. It's a gift, a strange quality that, like Jesus' kingdom, comes from elsewhere, but takes up residence in the world. Jesus comes to reveal the truth because he is truth. When we pitch the truth, against the world's truth, as Pilate did. We often find the world's version wins. And so here, we find one man falsely accused of promoting revolution, handed over to be executed, while someone who had taken part in a violent revolution is released. The truth is, that Jesus died on a cross for you and for me. And he did it because he loves us. Amen.